It's one thing to be a legend in one code, but to carry that title across two racing codes is something else. But that's exactly what Fred Kersley is, a legend in harness and in thoroughbreds. And he'll forever be known as the trainer of the champion galloper, Northerly. Fred, fantastic to get the chance to sit down and have a good talk. And I'm going to start with the burning question. It's about a 20-year-old question now. But any regrets that you never went on to that Melbourne Cup with Northerly? I thought that question would arise, but um, regrets, I wouldn't say it that way. No, you, you wonder if what would have happened. My immediate reaction after the race is when he got two kilos on top of the 58 that he carried, I thought that was a hell of an ask. And I was torn between, am I asking too much of him? I'd already tested him enough. I think Bart had made, been public about the horse was probably couldn't win the, uh, the Cox Plate after the work that he'd done. And he was getting to the, toward the end of his campaign. Now, you think back in these times, the regret I have that if he would have gone and he would have won, he would have been immortal. You know, and I wonder if I let him down in that respect. But I'm always conscious of the 60 kilos, which isn't 60 kilos, it's a little bit more with the kilo off of the weight and that sort of thing. So I just thought, there's a chance of breaking him down. And what would the public response to be with that and how would I feel about of asking too much? the horse had been so good to me. So from his point of view, if he could have got there and could have done it, I would have been that happy about it. But I was protective in as much as I thought, don't be greedy. Yeah, fair enough. And you'd already made, well, one slight, one significant change in that campaign, hadn't you? Because the Caulfield Cup wasn't always on the program. We had to throw at the stumps with the um, Caulfield Cup in as much as he was racing weight for age most of the time. So I went the wrong way around. I was in weight for age races before I exhausted the handicap potential of the horse. And so, um, yeah, I said, like, he's only going to carry the same weight. I think he'll get the mile and a half. And it looked to me as doable without an unnecessarily uh, testing the horse. Does it go down as one of his, perhaps one of his greatest wins when you, when you have time to look back on it all these years later? It's interesting, uh, the press and comment in more recent times rate that as one of his greatest runs. I, I didn't necessarily think that, because it was very, very good. Um, it, it was a tough run and a good run and he, he made the play and made it work. Normally in front with 100 metres to go, Fields of Omar, Republic Lesser closing, Northerly in front, Fields of Omar tries hard, Northerly, Northerly, Northerly beats Fields of Omar in a photo in a grand Caulfield Cup. But I can remember some of his Australian Cup, when the two that he won and the one he got beaten, Jesus, they were impressive. His first start in Victoria, he broke a track record. And then at his third start, he went to Flemington in the uh, Cup and, and broke another track record. Now that, that's a statement. That's a West Australian horse going to Victoria. Bit of doubt about whether he'd make it. In my mind too, was he good enough? How, how good was he? And he was tested, well and truly tested. It was the Carline Stakes, his first start in the race. I still remember that race very, very fondly. He got beat his next start, got interfered with early, didn't race kindly. Um, bit of criticism came his way and then we went to the Australian Cup at Flemington. Now Flemington was a lovely track for him and he just, he was brilliant. For everything he did afterwards, 
you could still argue that Australian Cup was almost the wow moment because, as you said, that suddenly the jury was out on him after that defeat at Caulfield. Then he went to the Australian Cup and obliterated the track record and won by a cricket pitch. Yeah, he answered all the questions that day. In my mind, that was as good as he was ever going to go and uh, he went back and did it again. We'll talk about some of the other big wins, but tell us more about him as a horse because he can't have been easy to train. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't an easy watch in races at times. A lot of comment about him was he doesn't feel like a good horse, but he is. And there was the other comment that frequently occurs is he seemed to be struggling in the run, but got the job done. But that was his bravery and his stamina. That, that, that was really what he was all about, doing it tough, uh, being very genuine. Uh, in the stable, the kindest horse you ever met. Just lovely horse, easy to handle. Could get a bit excitable at different times. And here I'm going to give a fair bit of credit to Sherry Hoff, the girl that strapped him, copped a bit of criticism along the way. She was unorthodox, she was different, but so was he. And it was a great match. It was a match made in heaven. She, more than me, made him. And at one stage, I think you even had to, you had to call in, I think Clinton McDonald rode him one day. Um, and did you send him to a, almost a, a farm somewhere to spend a bit of time, just trying to yeah. mentally get him in the right place? Yeah, after his first campaign in Victoria, I realised that there was a few things he needed to improve on and I sent him to do some equestrian work, some circle work in the that's, arena. That's pretty left field. Well, it was a bit different, but I just knew that he was—he needed to improve certain parts of his manner in terms of racetrack performance. Put him in the stall and he was, he's a big baby. He'd turn around and want you to scratch his bum, but there's no vice in him. But mentally, he was highly strong, fair to say. And I think most good horses are. I mean, that want to run is just imprinted. Another wow moment for me was taking on Sunline, and we're going to talk a lot about that rivalry with Sunline, um, probably much to the chagrin of Greg Child. Taking on Sunline in that Fian Stakes, Sunline dropped him, Sunline had him beaten. It was her backyard, she booted five lengths clear. Even you must have thought he can't win from where he was. Yeah, well, I wasn't confident, I'll put, put it to you that way. Um, that was one of the examples of where his toughness came into play. Now, she was faster than him, arguably as good as him. When you look at her record, it stands up very well compared to his, their lifetime career record. We had a good relationship with the connections of Sunline, and I was a huge admirer of her. She was a magnificent horse. And if he didn't come to Melbourne, she would have won three Cox Plates. The third one she got away from was going to win, but he dragged the field up to her, and then there's that battle at the finish, which was a bit of a war, if you like. Northerly and further back, Viscount. Sunline at the 200 metre mark, two in front. Northerly after Sunline, down the outside from Viscount. Sunline the leader, Northerly on the outside, and Viscount coming at her. Sunline in front, Northerly the outside, going to Sunline. They got very tight, but Northerly wins the Cox Plate. A half length to Sunline, who was tight and close to the line. She hung out, he may have hung in a little bit, which I didn't agree with the stewards there, so he didn't hang in. But um, she was the first one that made the move, so that was a telling point. Viscount, I think, if he'd have protested against Sunline, probably run second. Well, tell us more about that protest, because in a lot of ways, 
That was covered. Like everyone saw every moment of that protest, uh, whether they were watching on track or, or at home in their in their living rooms as well. And and for many people, it was their introduction to you. Um, we're going to talk a lot about your harness racing days, but all of that grounded you well for what was a bit of a dogfight in the stewards' room. Pretty much. Um on the track with the noise of the crowd and that, and, um, I wasn't aware till late that there was a protest until I was asked to go to the stewards room because I didn't hear on the track the, what was going over the loudspeaker. So I had to think pretty quick and think, how am I going to get out of this? And I was a little bit worried about uh, a hometown decision because the theme song was sometimes Sunline's Coming Home. It was all about Sunline. And he was sort of the enemy, if you like. So, I, looking at the film, I, I reckon I had the stats right. I mean, he made ground, he finished better. And it's pretty telling in a protest as which one finished better, which one should have won. Um, but it was an interesting um, time for me to get my act together. And, you know, you'd won the Cox Plate, but you could have lost it there. So in, in 10 or 15 minutes, going from that, to zero, it was not going to be very good. So, not zero, but getting beat. However, um, we worked it out. Well, I think a lot of people felt that, that it was a genuine chance of, of you losing the race, though. I did too. Well, well I, I hadn't seen the benefit of the head-on film trackside. So I didn't really know what happened. I did, and I thought he'd finished better, and I, was, I thought, OK, we've won the race, that's OK. So the film worked for me. And my experience in the stewards room, which was considerable, I might say, as a harness <laughs> racing driver, um, probably helped. And that, that was just part of that rivalry with Sunline, who, uh, as much as you got along well, they, the Trevor and Steve McKee and all involved with Sunline probably wished you never ever went to Melbourne in the first place. But, but her racing style brought out the best in Northerly, ironically. So it was the, the, the two opposites. The way she liked to race, it was, it was good for him, but it wasn't really good for her because she opened it up into being a staying race. And that was his strength, not his speed. He was fast enough, but she was faster, but he was stronger. She could break most horses, but he loved a dogfight. Particularly Mooney Valley, she could break them open 800 out, and then they were all in trouble, always chasing, always off the bit. But, you know, he was off the bit anyhow and he just kept on marching. He wasn't just a, a life-changing horse from a training point of view, but um, yourself and your wife Judith owned a significant part of Northerly and he was a life-changer financially at that time for you. Oh, certainly. I mean, he, Judy referred to it as a magic carpet ride. <laughs> and it was. Um, he came from nowhere, absolutely nowhere, was a sales reject, stood in the paddock. I didn't see him when I bought him. Um, and uh, we had a wonderful ride on a wonderful horse that just came from nowhere to be something very special. But a sales reject who showed potential, suddenly a massive offer comes in, a really big, I think half a million dollars was the offer early on. Now it's easy to look back and say, oh, half a million when you consider what he did, but but you, you weren't the only owners in the horse. Neville Duncan, of course, I think owned the other 50%. And, and there was serious consideration, at least from Neville's point of view, to, to want to accept that offer. Oh, yeah. The, the, Neville is a, a breeder, buyer, seller of horses. And, uh, you know, I understood his point of view that, you know, it was good for him. The, the horse had 
done enough, but what was he going to do, we didn't know. Um, I often wonder now, right now, with the stake money that is available today, with the record that he had, you know, what he might have earned. Now, don't worry about it, because it's not going to happen, but it, you know, it would be a, an example of how, just how good he really was. But for you guys, the, it was still a bit of a gamble, wasn't it? Because you had a property and it was a valuable property, but the stake money he was earning, you could either take the bird in the hand of that offer, and it would have, been, it would have changed your lives, or you could have backed him in, and you did back him in. Yeah, we did back him in, and we wanted to do that. We were enjoying the ride. Um, I felt like he represented West Australia very well. It was a bit of a time in sport in Western Australia where the cricket wasn't that good and the footy was not very good either. And he became an example of a West Australian horse on, on the big, big, in the big scene. And uh, people were very proud of him. I was very proud of what he did and the admiration he got from the public. So there was the emotional side of it. And like, I'd never done racing for money. I just like, that's my life. And for Western Australians, you were a racing legend long before Northerly came across. Um, and I want to talk about your harness racing career, but, but Northerly introduced you to a whole new audience. If I take you back to the beginning, I was considered to be a no-open, um, publicly. Kenny Casales wrote in the newspaper that after I won my first premiership, he said, oh, well, yeah, he's won his first premiership, but he never as good as got his uncle, who, who won, I think, 11 or 12. This is in harness racing, yeah. In, in harness racing. So, and I was in Struggle Street, don't worry about it, as a kid, you couldn't get, no, no junior driver concessions in those days. You took on the best of the best when you were trying to get drives in races in those early days. And I worked bloody hard and punished myself. It was headlines in the paper that he'd never be as good as his uncle or his father. Well, it turned out I just got the edge on him in the end. Well, the winningest driver, um, certainly at the end of your career of, of anyone in WA, and what was it, 17 driving premierships, 14 training premierships as well. Incredible. The greatest moments in harness racing? The most emotional moment for me is I qualified two horses for the pacing cap, James Eden, a local product. My dad, unbeknown to the stewards or anyone else, was losing his sight in one eye and was very close to retirement. And I got the two horses in the, into the final of the pacing cup and I asked dad if he'd take James Eden around. And I'd drive local product. And I'd and he, he won the race. Local product is drifting back through the field. It's James Eden in front in the stretch. Down the outside, Yankee Rhythm finishing strongly, followed by a fast rate. James Eden, a brilliant stayer, is holding Yankee Rhythm at bay, who broke up close to home. And James Eden is run from Yankee Rhythm. Fast rate may have run third on the inside of Dark Adair. And my dad in his speech said, the kids are better trained than me. No need for me to tell you that this is one of the proudest moments of my life. But I would like to pay a tribute Firstly to my son for training the horse. I believe that he's a better trainer than I ever was because I tried to win one training them myself and couldn't do it. And I had to wait for my son to train one for me and I truly thank him. He had a drive in the last race that night, horse called Stitching Time. I went to Stewards and I said, can you relieve him as he's driving, let him go out as a pacing cup winner. A race he'd never won. And you can tell how much that meant to you and oh, him. Highlight. Yeah, incredible. Um, the the best the best horses you drove. Oh, 
Best for different reasons. Best two-year-old ever drove is a horse called Parvo, unbeaten. Enormous speed. Just an enormous little horse. That, just cheap horse that did everything he should have done. You had the James Edel and local product. I mean, quite a number of those great horses. Just a Boyden, a huge run to win a pacing cup, trained by Greg Harper, that I drove. Um, classic Gary. She's fast. And he looked like a thoroughbred and he left speed in all his progeny. I drove some wonderful horses. Um, Vienna Dominion is the ultimate in harness racing, perhaps not quite what it was, but when you were in it, absolutely. And you won 10 Vienna Dominion heats, it took you all around Australia and even over to New Zealand to compete and things like that. Um, you went so close to winning a final. Yeah, couldn't nail the big one. Ran places on horses that were no good, which takes a bit of a compliment. My Inter-Dominion, without winning them, some, you know, they were great races. In those days, that was the Melbourne Cup of Harness, the Inter-Dominion, great series. Moving from harness racing into the thoroughbreds, um, is it right that you were the first dual licensed yeah. trainer? Yeah, well I wasn't wanted at the Gallops. I applied for a licence for three years and the Sport of Kings looked down on harness and eventually got uh, an approval from the committee to allow me to train horses. And when I first started training thoroughbreds, I wasn't going very good at all. Um, I had gallopers that just weren't much good. Um, and it was pretty much a relief when I've sort of got a, a bit of an edge, a leg into the, in the, to the thoroughbred code, but it, it wasn't popular, that decision to get the... We, we weren't the enemy, but we vied for the um, TAB prize the money, distribution, distribution yeah. is the word I'm looking for. The distribution, so there's always been a bit of a debate about who gets what, and it still goes on today. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't welcome and it, I just felt I wanted to prove myself against the, the thoroughbred trainers. I didn't think they were better than the harness racing trainers and I still don't think that. Um, because the harness racing people are more hands-on um, and in those days harness was very, very good. You know, in the early days we had higher state money, turnover was better, racing was better. These days, in the we'll call it the twilight of your of your career, um, you're still training a, a, a pretty good team. How many in work? I keep 20 at the moment, and I've invested in some horses that I've bred myself, which is probably not smart to be honest with you. But it's interesting to do it. It's good to take them along from being babies into being race horses. Uh, I don't do the sales much. I, I, I just don't like going to sales and paying more than they're worth and trying to get the money back. Uh, some people do it very successfully and, you know, it's good if you've got big syndications to help you out. I'm happy enough plodding along with a few horses just to enjoy. Well, I enjoy training horses. And another source of great enjoyment is the success that your grandson, Fred Jr, is having in Victoria. Just amazing. I, um, I didn't think early days he was going to, he wasn't sort of that interested, but um, when he got interested he he worked very well with him I think he I think he rides very well he's still got a way to go to you know to be recognized as elite um, I think he's on the way and he's done a marvelous job because he went to Melbourne alone and unassisted in a in a very difficult environment as a young kid to do what he's done is quite remarkable 
And to back that up in the last uh, 12 months, uh, my other grandson, Taj Dyson, is making a name for himself. So both those boys have got a career ahead of them. You said the term quite remarkable earlier on. I think that is the best way of summing up your career from those beginnings born into a harness racing family to the hard yards to the success you had and then that incredible transformation and in the words of your wife Judith the magic carpet ride that Northerly gave you uh, congratulations on the most incredible of careers and may this twilight period be just as enjoyable thank you Adam